I was just sitting there thinking after that last song that I felt a little bit like, uh, like a fullback put into the game in the fourth quarter, and we've driven the ball down to the one-yard line, and all I've got to do is just punch it across the goal line. The only thing I have to worry about is not fumbling it. You know, so if you just pray that I don't fumble it from here. So thank you guys for the, the music and the worship. I've got a question to ask you this morning. It's sort of, uh, I don't know, it's physical or physiological. It's, it's sort of spiritual. It's kind of philosophical. But it's something that um, just sort of picked my curiosity from an article that I read online. And this is the question. Do the dead know that they're dead? Do the dead know that they're dead? When you die, do you know that you died? And the reason I asked that question came from this article that I read in The Independent. And part of the article says this. It says, death just became even more scary. Scientists say people are aware they're dead because their consciousness continues to work after the body has stopped showing signs of life. That means that theoretically, someone may even hear their own death being announced. This claim was made by Dr. Sam Parnia, Director of Critical Care and Resuscitation Research at the NYU School of Medicine. He and his team are looking at people who suffered cardiac arrest, technically died, defined as the point at which the heart no longer beats and blood flow to the brain is cut off, but were later revived. Some of those studies say they had awareness of full conversations and seeing things that were going on around them even after they were pronounced dead. That sounds pretty terrible, doesn't it? Be careful what you say. These accounts were then verified by the medical and nursing staff who were present at the time. Here's my question for you, which is really much more important than that one. Could you be dead today? I mean you, right now, sitting here in that seat. Could you be dead today and not even know it? I mean, you know, you're still breathing and thinking, seeing, hearing, smelling, feeling, but could you be dead and not know it? I want you to pray with me. Father, if anything of any real worth happens in this place today, it will be because you made it happen through your spirit, using the instrument of your word, which is sharp and powerful, a two-edged sword that penetrates us to the point of irresistibility. We can't ignore it. We can't deny it. It does its work. So, Father, out of your great mercy and the grace that flows from that mercy, because you love us, Father, hit right to the point of the center of our hearts today. Show us what you see and give us hope and give us life and send us out of here so very different people than we came in. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Could you be dead and not know it? I was reading that little children's book, and it's predicated on two very basic gospel premises, foundational premises to the gospel, foundational things that start the gospel. When we say gospel, we mean good news. But good news is really only good news if it replaces or supplants something that's bad news. It becomes good news to the degree that it undoes something that's bad. And the scripture tells us this so very plainly, so very directly, where there's just no room for equivocation or denial. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a huge word there in only three letters that encompasses 
Well, everything. It's all, all of us. And, and truthfully, in, in my years of conversation with people and trying to have gospel conversations in particular with people, spiritual conversations, trying to introduce God to them, I've never met anybody yet. I really have not. No matter what their religious persuasion is, I've never met anyone who denied ever having sinned. I mean, if sin is falling short of the perfections of God, the standards set by a holy God, the ultimate of God, then who can deny it? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Romans 6.23 lays the hammer down on the consequences of that sin. The wages of sin is death. The consequence, the penalty deserved, the payments required. It's much like, like God himself said to Adam and Eve in that garden that I read about a little while ago. When he warned them against sin, what he told them is this, on the day that you sin, you will surely die. Now, they kept breathing and seeing and hearing and smelling and feeling and thinking, but something about them died that day. And here's my challenge to you today, and it's simple, it's direct. If you and I are still in our sin, if we're in an unforgiven state, if we're cut off from the mercy and grace of God, whether we know it or feel it, or conscious of it, aware of it, we are dead. And the greatest problem that we have provides the greatest opportunity and the setting for God to do the greatest of all miracles, and that's resurrection. The problem that you and I have is not that we're less than we could be, or less than we want to be, or less than we ought to be. Our problem is not that we're struggling a bit, or that we're weak, or that we're spiritually or morally or ethically sick. Our fundamental problem is this. Apart from Christ, the Bible says that we are dead in our sins. Listen to how plain the scriptures lay this out in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's speaking of Satan and his dominion in this world. He says the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. He said there's a, there's a spiritual reality here at work. When you look at the world around you, you say, why is this world so messed up? It's not just the choices of people. There's a spiritual dynamic to it. We live in a world that is dominated and dictated by our spiritual enemy. And whether people believe in him or acknowledge him or consider him myth or fable or really irrelevant to his strategy, he's at work in this world. He says, but we all live this way, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. What is he saying? Isn't this the way we all live? Do what you want to do. You do what you feel. You do what makes you feel good. You do what you think will satisfy. You do it that which you think will give you something that you feel like you're missing. You just go with you. He said, we carried out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. doesn't just mean that we live in a world that's angry. You know, don't you feel like we live in a world that's angry today? I mean, people just seem to be short of few, short of temper today. I mean, you don't have to look very far. You can just Google today people losing their temper on the road, people losing their temper in the grocery store line. Um, you know, we, we, we live in a time of just such volatility such unhappiness, such despair. But when the scriptures talk about sin and this kind of wrath in this setting, it's not simply talking about the world that you live in that you've messed up because of sin. It's full of anger and violence. 
No, that's just one side effect. The object of wrath means there is a holy God, perfect in righteousness, altogether light, and in him is no darkness at all. And his wrath is aimed rightly, justifiably, righteously at everything that opposes him, denies him, refuses him, called sin. So it says, we were objects of wrath, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one should boast. For we're his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, our greatest need today is, is not a, a better lesson to be learned, a better example to be followed. We need resurrection. We need our lives to be changed at the deepest level, at the most complete level. And see, here's, here's why I share this with you today. I, I just want to sort of give you a glimpse behind the, I don't know, the mental curtain as I prepare this message. I have one sort of overarching Easter concern. I mean, we all know Easter is probably our best attended Sunday of the year, right? You look, you look around, you're sitting in different seats than you normally sit in because somebody's sitting in your seat. I get it. No, no, we're glad you're sitting in their seat. Don't let them tell you that's their seat. No, we're glad you're here. This is my Easter concern, and part of it's a bit of confession, okay? I look back at, say, 26 years of Easter sermons, and I realize a fairly large percentage of them were similar in this respect. I spent a, a great deal of time explaining what I thought were the most essential proofs of the resurrection of Jesus. Reasons why we can be confident that what the Bible says Jesus did and what God did to Jesus actually happened. I mean, certainly this is one of the most studied events in all of history of any sort. And I spent a great deal of time speaking to those events with, with two premises in mind. One, I want you to be convinced that it's really true. And two, if you're a Christian, I want to equip you a little bit to be able to answer those objections. But here was the unintended effect, I'm afraid, of presenting an Easter message that way year after year after year. It would be far too easy for you to sit in this room and hear me talk about the, the legitimate proofs and give you something you've already heard and then to say, I believe that. I believe that's true. I believe those things happened. Check. And walk out of here completely unchanged by the reality of what took place 2,000 years ago. It's entirely possible that you should believe those things absolutely to be true. Yeah, I don't have any doubts about that. But not have the power of those events in your life today. And that's my challenge. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is more than essential history. What we've done today is not to give you a, a glorified history lesson. It's more than essential history. The resurrection of Jesus is the only means of power by which God gives us new life. Everything hinges on this. So when I was reading what Paul said, remember Paul said this. He says, I'm passing on to you, and I paraphrase, I'm passing on to you that which is of first importance. What's at the tip top of the list? Why do we, why do we make Easter our, our most important 
gathering of the year. Because of most importance, at the tip top of the list of what we believe as Christians is this, that Jesus Christ died and he was raised and that he appeared. We know Jesus is alive. This is of first importance to us. And when Paul said that, he said there are lots of eyewitnesses. He appeared first to a few and then to the disciples, then to over 500. And then the passage says, and makes very clear, of those 500, some of those people that he appeared to physically, you guys are sitting out here today. So if if Bob beside you says, man, I can't believe that. Nobody gets raised from the dead. Nobody's dead three days and comes out alive. That's the whole point. It's super miraculous. It defies science and logic. That's the whole point. Only God could do this. And you say, man, I cannot believe something like that. Dude, I'm telling you, I was there. I saw him. No, you just think you saw him. I shook his hand. We talked for a while. We had a sandwich together. You know, we, we were, I was there. I saw it. There was no denying it. Well, here's my fear. My fear is that in a similar way, in that day, people could say, hey, I believe that to be true. Where do I sign up? I want to go to heaven. I believe it to be true. And walk away? That's not what Paul was doing. He was not saying, just believe these facts to be true. He went on to say how these facts and your faith in the God who did this Your surrender to the Jesus who walked out of that tomb, your faithfulness to him, your fidelity to him, your surrender of your life to him, that's what changes everything. Whether you believe the resurrection is true or not is, in the largest scheme of things, irrelevant, because it did. It would be like saying, I don't believe that Washington Cross to Delaware or or whatever scientific, I mean, whatever historical event you want to deny. It happened. It's what do we do with this? What do we do with this event? Here's what Paul wrote to the Romans. In chapter 6, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Let me paraphrase for our purposes. If Christ is raised from the dead, conquering the power of death, destroying sin, which brings about the necessity of death, and if by the cross he died for our sins so we can be forgiven of those sins, If those things happen historically, he lived perfectly, so he died a death that he did not deserve. He died a death for someone else, someone else's. He was raised physically, bodily. He's ascended to the Father with the clear promise that he's going to return. If all those things happen, what does that mean for us? Well, now that I'm forgiven, I've got God's grace. Do we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, the resurrection is more about some future promise. It's more about some future hope. It's more than just about one day when I die, whenever that will be, whether I know I'm dead or not is irrelevant, and I see God. For the Bible says to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord for those who are in Christ. But for those who are not in Christ, they await a fearful day of judgment. On that day, on that day of death, This resurrection is our only hope of eternal life. But it's more than that. It's the power to change your life today. And if your life does not show transformation today, you've got little hope. 
of eternal life in death. Because the power at work in Christ is the power at work in us. Listen to what he says. Baptized into his death. That's a symbolic picture of our baptism. The old me gone, buried, done with Christ. The new me raised. How? A new life. A new life. Do you have a new life? I'm not asking you today, do you believe that Jesus was really resurrected? I'm not asking you today, do you believe that Jesus really died? I'm asking you to be honest with yourself and say, do I have a new life? Is my life different than it used to be? Because if it's not, I've got the best news possible for you today. It can be. Jesus came that you'd have life and have it abundantly. So there are four from these texts, four, and for lack of a better term, pardon my technical terminology on this somewhat, these are irreducible minimums of the new life. In, in other words, I would say if you don't have one of these components, you have some big holes in your spiritual game. you got some real reasons to consider carefully. Do I have this new life? What are these irreducible minimums of the new life? It starts here. You and I have to have an accurate view of sin and self. I've got to see sin not through some sort of modern lingo and lens, not through some sort of psychological, sociological 2022 view of sin, but through a biblical, God-driven view of sin. And as a result, I've got to see myself accurately. And without that, I'm never going to understand the rest of this. The biggest hindrance in anyone understanding what we call the gospel, the good news of how you can be made right with God, how you can have a new life today, an everlasting life for, with God forever when you die, the biggest hindrance to ever embracing that, no, understanding it, much less embracing it, is a very inadequate view of sin. Because if, if I don't understand what it is I'm being saved from, why would I want that salvation? If I don't understand why Jesus did what he did or what he did it for, or that he did it for me, there's nothing for me to embrace. We can talk all day long theoretically about the love of God for us, God's desire to save us, but it can't be divorced from what he's saving us from. It's sin. See, there's a bit of a, a myth that people are talking about living the good life, isn't there? I mean, this is what Ephesians talks about. You know, you used to live this life. What did that old life look like? You followed the course of this world. You weren't unique. You weren't independent. You, you weren't special. You were, you were in a very wide stream with a fast-moving current. And you were doing what the world did. Your values came from them. And your sense of right and wrong came from them. The things you aspired to came from them. That's the flow of this world. Even if you never understood that the influence behind that was the prince of the power of the air, he says, we all live like this. We carried out the desires of our body and the mind. We did what we wanted to do. And that's how we live. So we were all like this. But what it did was make us children of wrath. You look around at this world, and I don't want to belabor this, because these are easy points to be made which are not particularly beneficial to us. Why are people like they are? Now, I've got two dogs. I love my dogs. Somebody mentioned about maybe bringing my dog today because it's you know, a high-stress day, and it could be like my emotional support animal beside me. But I don't think it would give me much support. But, you know, I kind of understand, and this is a bit of a confession, but I kind of understand those people who have those um, stickers on their car that say something like this, you know, uh, you know, my dog is smarter than your honor student. Or, you know, I don't care much for people, but you know, I love my dog more than I love people, that sort of thing. I saw somebody posted something on Twitter the other day that asked this question theoretically and had tens of thousands of responses. Would you use lethal force to keep someone from killing your animal? 
I'm not asking you to answer that, which some of you are already answering, and some of you are saying, yeah, I probably would. <laughs> Over 70% of people said they would. I mean, we, we live in a mixed-up world. I saw an article the other day that posted, maybe you saw this, of a, of a dolphin that had washed ashore in Florida and had been tragically stabbed. Did you see the story? The outrage on that in Twitter, not that Twitter is an accurate measurement of the real world, it's a far-left world, but nonetheless, the outrage of this dolphin, that's upsetting to me too, it's a gruesome scene. I think, what kind of idiot does that? What kind of dark-hearted, cold-hearted person does that? But we have zero outrage for death in the womb, collective outrage, the millions and millions. And now we see the laws that are being passed in states like California that have moved the barrier so far to the left that what sort of world are we living in? Why is man like he is? Why is this world like it is? What does history tell us about the world? Wars and conflicts and injustices and evils and more importantly, why am I like I am? Why do I struggle like I struggle? Why do I have the thoughts that I have, or the feelings that I have, or the desires that I have? Well, apart from Christ, this is the answer. You were dead and your trespasses and sins. Dead doesn't mean sick. Dead doesn't mean weak. Dead means you're locked in here and there's nothing you can do about it. Dead means some force outside of you is going to have to act on your life and in your life for you to come out of that. Your time is done. If someone's dead, I don't say, you know, maybe you should change your diet. Maybe you should stop uh, driving so fast. Maybe you should wear a seatbelt. It's a little bit late for that. If someone's dead, something outside of me has to happen. Something outside of me must overcome me and what I've done. See, there's some things that you and I have got to get honest about before we come to Christ. This world's not getting better. And biblically, it's not promised to get better. We should not expect it to get better. Apart from Christ, I'm not getting better. I mean, you can try. You might be in a good season right now. But again, I'm not trying to be overly pessimistic, but if you look honestly at yourself, it's good and bad, ups and downs. I'm doing better than I used to, but God forbid I fall back into where I was. And the third thing is this wrath, this wrath idea is, man, this is foreign to my understanding of God. I didn't, when I think of God in my mind, I don't think of God like that. Well, then you have an idol. You have a God that you've made up. Not a God of the Bible. Because wrath, the righteous response of a holy and just God to every offense against him is the only right response to sin, or otherwise he's not just. If he just lets it go, if he just doesn't care. Our real problem is this. We don't want, we don't want justice. We want mercy. We really want mercy for ourselves, but justice for everybody else. God be God and judge them for what they've done. But God, give me a pass. So what's the answer? Something has to happen. Well, that's point number two. We start with this right understanding of sin and self and my, my own brokenness and my own need for God, but we react with a confident belief in God and in grace. Grace, the external work of God that rescues me. It's the dead person who's raised. It's not something they earned. It's what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Not by works, because what works can a dead man do to get alive again? It's grace. It's all grace. Therefore, it's by grace. So no one can boast. No one can say, I was on death's door. And look what I did. Man, I started running every day. And I started eating kale. And I don't eat donuts. You know, it's funny to watch all you with the donuts. I'm talking about that right now. We've sponsored them, so it's on us. Forgive us. You know, we've always been reaching after utopia, but we never find it. We never find it. 
We live in a world of incredible technology today. I feel like that old, old guy sitting on his porch telling the kids to get off his lawn when I'm having these discussions with my kids about those days when we didn't have cell phones. You, know, you don't understand what it was like. You know, I had a pager. If somebody paged me, I had to pull off the side of the road and find a pay phone. What's that? You know, it's this thing, you put coins in, you, never mind. It's funny, you know, I, little, little granddaughter, Charlie, um, if you ask her to, you know, talk on the phone and say, you say, hello, hey, she doesn't do this. This is what old people do, right? If you want to make the sign for I'm on the phone, you go, that means you're old. If you're young, you do this. <laughs> that's true. That's not, that's, that's totally true. I watch her. She'll pick, she'll put her little hand up and go, hey, <laughs> technology. Is your world better because you've got technology now? Are you morally better? Listen, we're, we're always trying to get better, but we don't get there, and we fail, and that's utterly pessimistic. There's only one truly optimistic view of life, only one, that though we're down in the depths of sin, dead in trespasses and sins, though we live like everybody else, trapped by all those things, the power of God came into this world through Jesus Christ. And if we'll put our faith and trust in him, he will lift us out. He will give us life. He will turn things around. And we'll be like that crowd in Ephesians chapter 2 that Paul was speaking to. You remember what you used to be? But you're not that anymore. And why are you not that anymore? Grace. Grace of Christ. Listen to what he says. God, being rich in mercy, because the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's grace. Most important thing that you can know as you walk out of this room today is this. It's God's love. God's love for you. Even in your condition right now, even in your sinful condition today, God loved us. Even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he loves us. God is love. And out of that love flows mercy. Mercy is the heart response of God to his love. How God sees us, perceives us, looks on us. It's the compassionate response of God. When God, because he loves us, sees us in our sinful condition, wrecking our world, wrecking ourselves, going off the cliff, as it were, what's his reaction to that? Mercy. Because he loves us. And out of his mercy, a powerful effect comes, and it's called grace. Because he loves us, looks at us with mercy, feels merciful towards us, he acts. He acts. He doesn't look like you're just watching a train wreck happen with, the, with no ability to stop it. I had the privilege of going to the basketball national championship game this year, thanks to the generosity of my friend Ron. And you know, we're sitting there watching the, watching the game. And I'm a Carolina fan, and so I was so into this game in the first half. It was so awesome. And the Kansas fans beside me were just quiet. The lady beside me looked like she was at a funeral, literally. She just was in mourning. Two Kansas guys beside me vanished for most of the second half because I guess they just didn't want to be there for the rest of the beatdown. Then the second half came. And with about two or three minutes to go, I feel like I'm watching a train wreck, like, but I can't stop it. You see this thing imploding. You see the explosion ahead. You, you see whatever analogy you want, it was coming. And then all of a sudden, these guys start to get loud. You know, now they get mouthy and everything. Seven beers probably help, but, you know, <laughs> the score... And man, when this game was over, the celebration, and I would say chest bumping, but it was more belly bumping, boom, we were all celebrating. <laughs> you know, like, like, something, like something amazing, something amazing had happened. 
You know, think of the disciples that day. On that Friday, and they're seeing the brutality of the cross. And they are watching a funeral. They're watching a funeral. They're watching everything come tearing down. There's nothing they can do to stop it. But on Sunday, man, on Sunday, there's life. Everything Jesus said is true. He's everything he promised to be. We'll stake our lives on this. We now will do what we once promised to do but didn't. We'll go to the grave for this. This is God's grace, and it's affected through his death and resurrection. It's God taking action, not just feeling sorry. It's God stepping and saying, I'll do something about this. I'll fix this. And he pours out grace. And how do you understand this grace? How do you receive this grace? In Christ. It's in Christ. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's grace. So number three, if you've got that grace, ask yourself this. Have I had a genuine experience of redemption and resurrection? An experience of it. Have I experienced the grace? Not just knowing that it's available, not just knowing what the scriptures say, not just knowing that it's offered, have I had an experience of redemption and grace? Because when we talk about being brought from death to life, that's the most profound level of change possible. There, there's, there's no terminology that the scripture writers could have employed that would have been more emphatic about what it means to come to Christ. This is not turning over a new leaf. This is not a fresh start. This is not a better you. This is not your best life. This is everything being made new. You're not just better, you're new. That's profound. Paul writes it like this, you're no longer an object of his righteous wrath, but you're a recipient of immeasurable riches. From wrath to riches? Have any of you ever been to the courthouse when someone has their official adoption ceremony? You know, this is a a legal event. A judge presides over. And in that event, something judicial happens. But the most important part of that event is something relational happens. You become adopted into a family. That becomes your family. That's who we are in Christ. It's judicial, yes. We are forgiven. We stand before the judge who pronounces us not guilty, not because we never sinned, but because Jesus took all of our sin debt and paid for it. It's judicial for sure. But far more than judicial, it's relational, because now he adopts us. Now you're part of me, my family, forever and forever and ever. We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Again, that's not better, that's new. Not who I used to be, don't like what I used to like, and I don't do what I used to do or want what I used to want, and God has made me new. And what's the evidence of me being made new? It's number four. The evidence of that newness is this, an increasing evidence of both freedom and faithfulness. It's not perfection, but it's growing in my freedom, in my faithfulness. When I say freedom, what's this passage talking about that we've been set free? Free from what? Obviously, it's free from sin, but it's not just being forgiven for it. It's not just the mark of judicial forgiveness. It's the power at work of, power of God at work in my life that sets me free from the habits of sin. The behaviors that drove me, 
the desires that caused those behaviors, that made me susceptible to those temptations. It's God setting me free at the very root, at the very core, where I'm not a slave anymore. Because before Christ, I could not do what God wanted me to do, like God wanted me to do it. All my righteousness was as filthy rags. The best parts of me were tainted with sin. But now in Christ, I'm free. Free to what? Free to finally do good. Free to finally do good. You think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve, before sin came into the garden, they could do good. They could do good. They had no sin debt. They were able to do things that pleased God. They were able to walk with God and enjoy God. They lived good. They did good. There was good in the garden until sin came into the garden. You see, they could do good because nothing challenged their relationship with God. God didn't have to make them. He did out of grace. He made them. They had a relationship with him. They walked with him. They were free to do good. They didn't have to earn God's favor. It was there. It's an unmerited grace. Just the grace of God. I'm going to make you, and I'm going to put you in paradise. I'm going to put you in Eden, and it's going to be good, and we're going to enjoy good together. That's unmerited grace. But when sin came into the world, the equation changed. It's now you and I are much like the sinful Adam and Eve. But unlike Adam and Eve, you and I didn't start from dirt. We didn't start at zero. We didn't start at nothing. We didn't start neutral. We were born into sin. It's part of our natures. Our parents were sinners, and our grandparents, and everyone that came before them from Adam on down. And we're not just sinners by our nature, we're sinners by our choice. So it's not just unmerited grace that God gives us now. We might better call it demerited grace, because we had a lot of demerits on our account. We had a lot of negatives on our account. We were already sinners. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and God gives us demerited grace. So now when we do good, it's not because we're trying to earn God. It's not because we're trying to get him to change his mind about us or undo what we've done that's been so wrong. In this demerited grace that we've been given, we do good because God has made us righteous in Christ. We're his sons and his daughters. And our do good is just part of our joyful pursuit of him. And I can't help but joyfully pursue him and at the same time abandon sin. So he's given me freedom. And so in my life, this evidence, this growing evidence, am I showing the freedom from my old sins? And am I showing the faithful pursuit of God in increasing measure? These are the marks of Christ in me. So what about you? I want you to go way beyond believing the resurrection happened. I want you to experience it. I want you to experience the power in your life. If I've described you today, Christian, then celebrate it. If I've described you today as one who's been set free, not just free from sin, but the freedom to pursue faithfulness to Christ, then, then pursue it. Seek it. Pray for it. But if that's not you yet, then this is my prayer for you. These are the words of Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus has offered you the opportunity to pass from death to life. That's eternal. And it's today. I'm going to ask you if you'd bow your heads with me this morning, wherever you are in this room, everyone listening. Father, first, I'm going to pray on behalf of the brothers.
the sisters, the church, the family of faith, made so not by our good works, nothing we have to be proud of or to boast about, but made so by the grace of God. Father, I thank you that Ephesians chapter 2 is true of us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but you made us alive. You made us alive through your grace. Thank you, God, for that grace. And Father, because we've been made alive, as Romans 6 says, we can't live like spiritually dead people anymore. We got to walk in this new life, this new life that you've, that you've given us, that you've allowed for us. It's the mark of who we are in Christ, that we're not who we used to be. These new affections and these new attitudes and these new behaviors, not working our way towards you, but living out of the love you've expressed to us and our response to it. So, Father, thank you that we're not who we used to be and that we are alive. And that one day, just as you promised, just as Jesus displayed the firstborn from the dead, the very first one, we too one day will be raised to new life. And so, Father, I thank you for that. Father, I pray that if there's anybody in this room that doesn't have that new life, I mean, maybe they believe the info. They've accepted certain propositional statements to be true. But as far as the transforming power of you and their lives, well, they're, they're absent that. They're dead and don't know it. Father, I pray that today would be a day of real surrender to you. Father, take my life, all of it. Like all the sin and regrets and mistakes and or just every part of it and redeem it. Replace it with the life of Christ, his perfections, his love for me. I receive your grace today, Father. I believe I believe in your love for me. I believe in the mercy you have towards me. I believe in the grace you showed towards me through Jesus who loved me, gave himself for me, and was raised for me. And I receive your grace today. Now, Father, give me the power to do what pleases you. Place your spirit in me. Verifying the promise. Sealing the deal that I'm yours. And Lord, lead me now in a way that pleases you for the rest of my life. Not so that I can earn the favor, but so that I can enjoy you. So I can enjoy the good, new, full life you offered me. Father, make me a new person today. Listen, if that's your prayer today, and I want you to own that. I want you to call out to God in some way in your own words towards that end. I can't pray you in. No one can baptize you in. No family member can believe you in. But today, if you'll humble yourself and receive his grace, you will. You'll have it. And you become his forever and ever. Father, I pray that our response to you right now would so please you, Father, that obedience, Lord, would mark what we do right now for your glory and our good. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.